Thank you very much, Orchestra. Take your Bible, turn to Romans 16. We are right here at the end of this book, and we will look through this passage of Scripture, and then this is not going to take all that long, and as we finish up, then we'll have baptism tonight. Romans 16. We've reviewed this book a lot, and we're not going to spend a ton of time here. I just want to look at uh, the first part of this, of this chapter. We mentioned the greetings. Paul talks through greetings. He greets all the people in the church. We listed those folks, and I, I gave them to you on your handout there. I even filled in some of the blanks that were left from last week in case you are coming uh, to it for the first time. But this is much the same uh, handout as you had last week if you're joining us from last time and you stuck it in your Bible. If you go to verse 17, this is where we're picking up this week. <coughs> Excuse me, verse 17, as we go to the end of the chapter, we notice that Paul, as he speaks to the Romans, he thinks about these people whom he loves very much. He lists them all and some of their attributes, some of the things that he loves about them, some of the character traits they have. And then it's almost as he goes to this point, as he gets to verse 17, that he, he, he has a a cry in his heart of care for these people. He's worried about them in a sense. He's worried that they, like so many others, are going to be convinced by people who are smooth talkers to follow another gospel, to go somewhere else. And, And I want you to just imagine for a minute that you are in a first century church. You have the Old Testament, but much of the New Testament is still coming to you. In fact, the book of Romans, as it comes is fresh from the pen of the Apostle Paul. And so it would be very difficult for you to, it would be very easy, I should say, for you to fall into the uh, deception of those who would teach contrary to God's Word. Look at verse 17. He says, now I urge you, brethren, he's speaking to believers, and he says, note those, put a mark on those, Point them out who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. He says here that you need to be careful to look at these brothers and sisters, or look at these, as he, as he calls them, brothers or sisters, look at these people who are not brothers and sisters. They are those who are causing divisions and offenses. They are, they are well, I've got no signal. I'm sorry. Let me try this again. We were moving things around over here, and I'm afraid we might have pulled a power cord or something. Let's see how this works. All right, let's try this. Let's power. Let's just do one quick. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, tech support while we're going. And look at that. I think it worked. Not quite. Well, it's showing up on mine. Give me one second. All right. Let me try this again. Ready? How's that? All right. Got it to work. Um, in verse 17, he says, note those. That is, take, take note of them. Be aware of them. Look at them and mark them out. And he says that at the end, avoid them. There are these people who have contrary doctrine. They cause dissensions and hindrances. And they do this contrary to the doctrine which you learn. That is, there is a sense in which sometimes you need to divide and you need to cause a division. But that divi- there's a division which is according to the gospel, and there's a division which is not according to the gospel. 
There is a division between right and wrong, light and darkness, and there is a division which is contrary to God's Word, and that's what he's pointing out here, I believe, when he says, avoid these folks. They're doing this contrary to the doctrine which you learned. This is the doctrine once for all, delivered to the saints. We have it in the Word of God. He says, look out for these kinds of people and turn away from them. Do not allow them to gain a foothold in the church. And then he continues this warning in verse 18, for those who are such, again, describing these people, these who cause division, those who are such, do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would he have to say that? Well, they are coming across as though they serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but in their actions they betray, they do not serve him. But instead of serving Christ, what are they serving? Yes, their own, but he uses a very interesting term here. What are they serving? Their own bellies. This idea of appetite, right? They are serving their appetites. They're serving what makes them happy and what satisfies them for a short time. What seems to satisfy them, they are serving themselves. They are feeding themselves. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the heart of the simple. So these folks are using words and deception to gather a following for themselves to feed their own appetites. And this is, a, a, he warns them. In fact, we're going to go to a couple passages here. If you, you can turn there in your Bible if you like, but I'm going to also have it up on the screen here. Acts chapter 20, I want to point you to Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders. He hones in on a very, very similar theme. When Paul's speaking to these Ephesian elders, he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this. Think about when he's saying this. This is the first generation of church people. This is not a new problem. This problem has existed from the very beginning. He says, I know this, that after my departure, how does he describe them? Savage wolves. People will come among you who will desire to rip you apart, and they will not spare the flock. He calls us the flock of God. Here we have the, the churches like the flock of God, and this, these savage wolves will come in among you. There is actually a, 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 the same thing here, that there are people among the church who will rise up and not spare the flock. If you keep going, he says, also from among yourselves. Here it is again. And who's he speaking to here? I said it earlier, the Ephesian what? elders, the Ephesian pastors. And he's talking to the Ephesian pastors, the Ephesian elders, and he says, from among yourselves, there are going to be pastors who rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. This is a warning he has. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul, Paul speaks here a warning that there are people who do not have your best interest in mind in ministry. I think we see that all over our world today. We see pastors and preachers and people on TV, people not on TV, who abuse and take advantage of their position of teaching the Bible of a spiritual authority and misuse this authority to the detriment of those who listen to them. And that's why, as I spoke this morning, we must focus on the Lord as our point of worship. We do not dare focus on men. If we start exalting men and being all about people, we have missed our way. We, have, we, have, we are in, in putting ourselves up to this kind of danger. One more passage of Scripture I actually mentioned this morning um, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
Now, in 2 Timothy, it's, it's the last letter that Paul writes. He's writing to Timothy, this young pastor in the faith, okay? He's a young pastor in this church. And as he's writing to, the, to, to, to this pastor, he, he describes the same problem. He says, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Where does he point him to show him where the authority of of truth is? Where does he point him? To the Word of God. You see that? You have known the Holy Scriptures. It is the Scriptures that he points to, which is then why he says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is breathed out by God. It is authoritative for our lives. It is infallible. It is perfect. And it is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The context of these verses is in defending the faith that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. He says, therefore, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, preach the Bible, be ready in season, out of season. This is why we study the Bible, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching, for the time will come when they, the people, will not endure sound doctrine. It's a two-pronged problem. If you go back to the beginning, you have imposters and evil men in the church deceiving people. And what's the second part of the problem? You are. <laughs> the congregation is not, not you. You're great. I love you all very much. But congregations are the second part of the problem. You have leaders who get, get people for themselves, but the time will come when congregations don't endure sound doctrine. They want for their own desires, they have things inside of them that they want to hear, or they have things they want excused, or sins they want excused, or things they don't want talked about. And because of their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. This is what happens all the time today. People have their own list of pastors that they follow on, on the internet, and that's their heaping up for themselves pastors and teachers that agree with them, and they will turn their ears away from truth, be turned aside to myths or fables. He says, but you be watchful in all things. That's pay attention, endure afflictions, do the work of the evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. I find this very important that Paul, over and over again in his ministry, cries out to us to be careful about two things, pastors or leaders building up for themselves a following and congregations desiring teachers who agree with them. So we need to be careful about these things. The first warning is look out. That's the first warning, verses 17 and 18. Look out. Look at verse 18. Uh, He says, uh, let's go back to my one second here. 18, he says, for those who are such do not serve. We already talked about that. This is the description of them. They serve their own appetites. They have smooth speech. Therefore, I urge you to, to, to value people who will tell you the truth. Look at verse 19. He says, we are then to be wise about good things and innocent about evil things. I believe here at the, at the end of this letter, Paul is like throwing in some P.S. instructions. For your obedience, he says, has been known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple or innocent concerning evil. I want you to know a lot about God's Word. I want you to know a lot about good things. And I want you to be very simple about evil things. The last portion of this passage begins in verse 20 through 27. I've entitled this just blessings. The first blessing is that God gives you victory. Look at verse 20. The God of peace 
will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Paul says God will give us victory. God is sure to win. He is the God of peace. This is kind of funny, actually. He, he uses this, and God of peace will crush Satan. How do you achieve peace? Through strength, right? You achieve peace through strength. God's strength over Satan, His crushing Satan will achieve peace. It's not, it's not pacifism of, oh, we don't want conflict around here. That's not peace. He says, I will crush Satan. God will crush Satan under your feet and he is the God of peace. Then he lists some of these personal blessings. Notice all his companions. They work with Paul. They bless the church at Rome. They are not people who are with Roman church. These are the people who are probably coming with Paul or coming with the letter, or there are people who work with Paul, who know people in Rome, whatever. They are companions of Paul. Look at all of them. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. And then I want you to notice this fascinating verse 22. This is what is called, we have an evidence here of what's called an amanuensis. Tertius, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. And somebody out there is saying, wait a second, I thought this was a letter from Paul. Who's Ter- Are we even le- reading a letter by Tertius this whole time and we didn't know it until now? Now, what would happen is Paul, who would write the letter, would dictate the letter to a man who would call an amanuensis. And he would write the letter in Paul's voice to the people. And here at the end of the letter, Tertius signs his signature. He says, I, Tertius, am the, the one who, who wrote this epistle, who, who wrote it by hand, greet you in the Lord. Then we have Gaius, the host, and the host of the whole church. He says, my host and the host of the whole church. That's somebody who, who had the church in his home. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greet you. That's fascinating. We have a man who was a large city official probably who got converted and Quartus, a brother. And then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And then we have a doxology. And I appreciate the doxology that we just sang a few minutes ago, because this is another doxology, a praise to God, and it is a blessing that Paul writes here to the Roman church. As he closes the letter, he says this, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, And the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest. And by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone, wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Now, when I study passages like this, I will often do what's called block diagramming, which is when you take a word processor and you you sort... Um, description or phrases in ways that show their relationship to one another. I'm going to show you just something that I do often when I preach, and this is how I structured this particular passage. I'm going to walk you through it. I'm not going to take forever on this, but I think this might help you understand what's being said and help you perhaps appreciate what's being taught. As he speaks to God, he says, now to him, and describing him, how do we describe him? He who is able to establish you. This is God's description. And how is he able to establish you, or what is he establishing you in? How does he establish you? According to what? According to my gospel, and according to the preaching of Jesus Christ. In fact, the gospel and the preaching might be a description of the same thing, the gospel, or the preaching of the gospel, perhaps, even. That's the first thing he's according to. You see the parallelism here. Secondly, he's able to establish you, too, according to the revelation of the mystery. 
What is a mystery? A mystery in the New Testament language is, is something that was previously hidden but now is revealed. In our, in our parlance, when we say mystery, we're talking about like a, a murder mystery or a whodunit. And really what that comes from is in those stories, you don't know who did it, and then you find out who did. So it's a mystery in that sense. But, but in the Bible terms, a mystery is not something secret or not something that, or not something that is, that is a mysterious. In fact, uh, even I'm using the word mystery and saying that, sorry. The idea is, is that something previously God had hidden from us, now He has made known. So here, what is the mystery which he says kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations? What is that mystery? Absolutely. He actually talks about salvation at the cross and I believe specifically the union of the Gentiles and the Jews. That's what this whole book has been about. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God until salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek, and he talks about the Jews and the Greeks, the Jews and the Greeks the whole time. He's talking about the glory of this, how to live together as Jews and Greeks. And this is the revelation of the mystery, the unfolding of God's mystery, which previously had been kept secret since the world began, but now was made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures was made known to the what? To the nations of which we are included. Thirdly, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for the obedience to the faith. This is the commandment that comes from God, and the purpose of this commandment is that we obey the faith. And then he says, to God, who is alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. This is the praise, and this is the the doxology of the book of Romans. As we close out, I'd like to just finish by adding some lessons learned, and I, I put this at the bottom of your outline there. What are some lessons that the book teaches? Well, there are some, some simple lessons. One is that doctrines have consequences. Beliefs have implications. I mean, think about just the structure of the book. The first 11 chapters are what? Doctrine. Chapters 12 through 15 into chapter 16, application. What you believe has implication for how you live. If you believe something, it will work itself out in your life. So, what you believe has consequences and implications. The second is the New Covenant community, that's us, the church, contains Jews and Gentiles together as part of God's plan, and it's a beautiful thing. Another lesson learned from Romans is that you can't save yourself. You need Jesus. Amen. (laughs) That is abundantly clear. Fourth, God knows what He's doing. I say this because in chapters 9 through 11, He talks about the fact that the, the mystery there of the Jews rejecting Christ and all the, well, then are they lost forever? And all those complicated questions are bound up in the truth that God is eternal and wise, and He knows what He is doing. And then in the last part, I believe that there is hope for our spiritual growth. Even though we see this uh, challenge of chapter 7, we see the Spirit and His power in chapter 8. What are some major doctrines communicated in the book of Romans, well, we have depravity and the culpability of man, that we are sinners. We have justification by faith. That means we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Romans 4, 5, Romans uh, talks a lot about justification by faith. Doctrine of original sin, that we are through Adam sinners. The doctrine of progressive sanctification, Romans 4, or Romans uh, really 6, 7, and 8 deal with the doctrine of progressive sanctification, that we are 
little by little growing to be more like Jesus Christ. And this is not an instantaneous thing that we all of a sudden are holy and never sin again, that we will struggle, but the God, God has given us the Spirit who will allow us and give us strength to be sanctified. And this sanctification happens through the power of the Spirit. It is not about your own ability. It is not about you working super hard. God does this work in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. We also find teachings on Christians' behavior towards secular governance, like in Romans chapter 13. How do we believe, or how should believers act towards the government and behavior in the body of Christ? How do we deal with when people disagree, which is going to happen? Romans chapter 14 deals with that at length, doesn't it? What about when people believe one thing or another thing? Some people eat this meat, some people don't. And also there is equality among the Jews and the Gentiles. What an amazing book we have here. It talks about the doctrine of salvation. And I think it's fitting that tonight we're having a baptism, which signifies, which shows the picture of redemption. It shows the glory of salvation. It isn't itself salvation, but it shows the picture of what salvation is meant to be. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a wonderful study. Thank you very much for working through this with me. I really appreciate your attention over the past many weeks. I think I looked at this as like 20-something weeks, 27 weeks of study, and you guys have done tremendously in and keeping up with that. Let's have a word of prayer. I'll turn it over to Eric. We'll have a few songs. Oh, no. David, I'm sorry. Turn it over to David. David's going to lead us in a few songs, and then um, uh, we'll have a baptism. Lord, we thank you so much for how you have blessed us by saving us through the shed blood of Christ. We thank you that this salvation is given to us by faith in Christ, and we thank you that we do not have to work our way to heaven, but you have. Gi- this is a gift, and a gift that we did not earn by any, in any way. And we rejoice today that you've given us directions on how we are to treat one another, how we to love one another and care for each other in the church. And Father, we ask that you be with all of us as we go our separate ways tonight. I pray that we would live out the gospel in our relationships, that we would care for each other and uphold one another in the faith. Bless now this baptism service. We thank you for the faith it represents. We pray your blessings on it now.